All righty, welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide, and I'm on a Zoom call with Ted Hager, and we're going to talk um, some new sheet neat stuff. Actually, we got a, we got an interesting sort of conversation for the newer shooter. And so, because um, we both do, Ted teaches classes. Ted, you can say hi. Hi, Ted's uh, here. Ted's here. Um, we both do classes for brand new people. And Ted's the, uh, the guy behind the weaponized mask, the Jack Master charts on Sniper's Hide. We talk about them all the time. So if we tell you to go onto Sniper's Hide and download a piece of uh, material, you know, uh, a Winrose, a mover chart, a weaponized math, Ted made it. So that's kind of where it should go. So all that stuff comes from him. So we wanted to talk about the pitfalls of starting out as a new shooter and where those potholes are, the, 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 the bad decisions people make because there's so much information out there. And, you know, just how do you wade through everything coming at you? Because there's so many disciplines. Really what it comes down to, Ted, is people mix disciplines. Yeah, a lot of that. Um, and as you get far enough into listening to different people talk and different pieces of information, you really have to start paying attention to who's talking about what. Right. Um, good examples like Eric Cortina. He's trying to shoot a five-inch circle at a thousand yards. He's got a different system than, than Brian Litz, who's trying to hit a target at 3,000 yards, who has a different system than what Frank Galley is trying to shoot 1,000 and in. Right. You know, and, and you really got to pay attention to who's doing what part and understand why they're talking about it. So you know? that's probably a good thing. Maybe we need to define right here who's our audience that we're specifically talking to. So we're talking right now from 100 to 1,000 yards. We're talking a precision rifle. And do we want to kind of give it a um, sort of half M away to one M away sort of standard accuracy first target size kind of a, a you know, let's call it a, a, a one M away target going out. A one M is actually kind of small. Right. If you think about two PRS, a PRS shooter is shooting a two MOA target. So 20 yep. inches at a thousand yards. Okay. So let's talk in the context of that, that we're going to take a new shooter because a new shooter is not shooting one MOA. If we look at, um, I've been talking with Chris way for the last couple of days. I think he considers an average across the course shooter to be three to four MOA looking at the craft system he has. So that's shooting from a prone to a standing using support. And people are maintaining three to four MOA. That's where the newish people are. Right. Agreed. Yeah. A, a lot of that's the good parameters to know what we're talking about to understand the direction we go. And the last thing I'm going to put in, or not last, I'm sure we'll add a couple more things in here. We want to talk a, 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 a short action caliber, short action caliber. So your six millimeter to your 308. Okay. Six millimeter 308. We're not going to talk your 300 wind mag magnum. We're not going to talk your 338. We just want to talk a short action caliber. And then we want to kind of preface this that you want a precision rifle scope that's at least a 10x. Yep. 
right? Yep. And and the the three hundred win mag thing is funny because how many shooters, how many times online, how many Facebook chats do you always see someone say, "I'm getting into long range shooting, and I got to I'm getting a three hundred win mag." And it's usually because that shooter doesn't understand to shoot a thousand yards. You don't need that kind of caliber. Well, bigger is better for a lot of people. They, and right. we see three, three hundreds and three thirty eights. Like the, the, it, there was a period of time in this world that I was teaching the three thirty eight savage axis was the bane of my existence <laughs> because everyone wanted to show up with a three thirty eight savage because you can get it for like eight to 1200 bucks. They figured 338, how can I go wrong? And they were showing up left and right. We basically don't want you to come to our class with a Magnum. Right. And, a mag- and uh, right. So, and, and a, a 338 or a 300 wood mag is a good caliber. Don't, don't get me wrong. It does a good job, but it's not a caliber meant to learn how to shoot long range on. If you got to kill something, take the Magnum, go use it. But if you're going to learn, bring a caliber that you can manage and you can shoot 80 or 100 rounds of in a day during a range session. Because if you have a Magnum and you can only shoot 20 rounds, you're developing flinches, it's not helping you any. Right. Just a FYI, man, the guys are taking moose in Alaska with a 6.5 PRC. Wow. Okay. All day, every day, they're taking moose. With a 6.5 PRC. So I get it. You want bigger and better, but let's talk shop placement. Let's talk setup if you want to go there. So this is where we want to go with the pitfalls of starting out, right? Where do you want to pick? So you and I both are monster Tika fans. Yeah, I really like the Tika. That's where I got started as well. Right. So, I mean, think about a Tika as a medium action. Mm-hmm. Right. It's 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 a great no nonsense, not overly large, not overly complex. It's easy to use. It's easy for the uh, uh, the shooter to service doesn't use tools like that. Any tool you need, they gave you. Yep. You know, and uh, and, and they're an action that's worth upgrading afterwards. Yes. You've uh, got a very good action to rebarrel it, add a different chassis, do all those types of things. Aftermarket parts are inexpensive compared to like the Remington platforms. When you look at like you can get a bolt knob from Sterk, S-T-E-R-K. Love that guy. You can get an AI bolt knob for that guy for like 100 bucks, man. And it just spoons out, spoons back in. It's money. So there's a lot of things that, you know, um, you can get with a Tika. So think about a Tika platform. And that goes for the, like, you know, you got the Bagaras, you got all these other stuff. But if you look at what's done around a Tika, it's a good starting point. Now, one of the things both of you agree tends to be a negative, And how do you work with Tika T3 comes with a Tupperware stock, like the old Savage used to have the Tupperware stock. You get a lot of plasticky Tupperware stocks in the lower cost rifles. So, right. And, and a, a Tupperware stock, there's things you can do to it to make it work. But if the stock itself is the wrong shape to start with and you don't have be able to put proper fundamentals with it, then you're in a bad place. Like, so most of the really cheap stocks that manufacturers put out there that are to hit a price point, right? Um, they have a stock design that was originally designed in the 1800s meant to go on a shotgun. Right. And to shoot standing. 
Yeah, and to shoot standing. Uh, and and today's well, we're, the way we're shooting now, we're not doing anywhere close to that. But somehow we keep getting rifles that have the exact same stock on it and have no purpose of being there. Um, when when the stock was designed with a comb that drops on it, so that you're able to see right across the top of the barrel, like on a shotgun. But no longer are we doing that. Give give me a rifle that you can buy now that even has field sights on it. It's it's hardly out there. Right. Everything comes with a Picatinny or to be able to put a Picatinny and a scope on it. So why are we still doing that same stock? And the only reason is for price point. Yes. When you, when you have that stock, you have to be able to do things like uh, a lot of guys like to fill the butt stock with Bondo. Make that a little more solid. You're going to still fill the forend. Um, some guys are laying in a carbon arrow and epoxy to try to strengthen the forend. And then you still have to deal with a grip problem. You, how do, you, you can't. You can't grip that rifle properly and get to a good trigger placement. No, you got to duct tape the hell out of it, or you're gonna. They used to sell years ago. They used to sell grip molds that were clay and stuff, and you would do them up and mold them and, and make them to fit your hand. But uh, you don't see those kits anymore, the grip kits that they used to have. And it wasn't very long ago they were still making them. Um, right, those grip kits. But yeah, I mean the the stock is an area that when you get into these plastic stocks, and I really like that Ted brought up how the comb drops down. Now we want our comb to go up because we want higher rings, all that. Exactly what Ted was saying is where the, um, the old wives tale, the, uh, the gotta get low, gotta slam your scope down, right? Because what they they were trying to do is mimic iron sights. Now we want to put our scope up let me I'll give you an example, guys. If you're listening, mount your scope at least for me, minimum half inch over the barrel. Minimum, I'm going to say that's where I'm at. I want it that far away, if not a little farther. What do you say? Yep. I'm, I'm in the same boat because I don't want to be anywhere close to having an interference there. Yep. And as long, as long as you have an adjustable cheek riser to be, get the proper eye placement, you have no reason to be any lower. Yes. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you can you can argue very small semantics if you wanted. If you can't your rifle, it's a worse error. Uh, well, okay, slightly. Do the math; it's not very big, due to the height over bore. Um, the 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 only the only place that I say get as low as possible is when you're still stuck with that old stock that doesn't have a cheek riser, yep, has yep. a dropping comb. Because you're affecting two things with it. One is you can't get a very good cheek weld. So you have to get the scope low enough to get some kind of cheek weld. And the other thing you're really affecting is the connection of the rifle to your shoulder. This is where we get a lot of guys want to lay on their rifle instead of have the rifle in front of them. Yeah, roll their heads. They're doing all kinds of stuff. Right, right. Because that stock is so low. And now it's hard to make it meet the collarbone. It's kind of more into your pec muscle that's lower instead of your collarbone because the comb drops and your scope's too high. So getting away from that 1800s design stock is one of the first things that new shooters really need to pay attention to. And this year, we're seeing a lot of rifles that are coming out and getting rid of that. Yeah, the chassis, Um, the manufacturers are going to the chassis people and you got MDT, which is huge just running right through to everybody. I mean, the Savage comes in an MDT. This one comes in an MDT, you know, and if it's not an MDT, now some of the other people are going with manners, like the manners adjustables. So like Springfield Armory's got that stock and or that rifle that came out, their precision rifle. They went with manners. 
you know, even CZ with the 22s went with Manners. So you're getting these stocks that are, that, that are giving you, or they're getting these rifles from manufacturers that are getting you stocks with adjustability. Right. And, and even other manufacturers doing their own, Tika Tac A1. Yep. I mean, that's out there. Bagara, the Bagara, what is it? The B14 or something, or the, mm-hmm. whatever the Bagara is there, has a really good starter stock that comes on it. I'd really like to see Tika kind of jump in that direction and, and more of a starter stock than what comes on their CTR, that kind of thing. Um, even Browning this year at SHOT Show announced more of a very fittable stock. Right. You know, they're, they're making their own and, and bringing it to the game. We're going to start seeing more and more of that. Um, the, the bad part is it's price point, right? Price points got to go up in order to get that good stock. So, all right. So stocks, you want to look at the context of what you're doing, you know, so definitely look at the stock, the stock design and know that if you're going for that bare bones sort of T3X style that doesn't have any adjustability in it or very minimal amount of adjustability, because I do think the standard T3X has like a little bump piece that brings you up a little, right? Don't they have like a little added bump on it? Um, it, it may, I'm, I'm not even I, sure. I don't even remember, yeah, but anyway. So you want to go and look at the stock. So figure that you want to move to that type of stock to something that's going to fit and support the rifle a little bit better. So, so then from there, what else? Now I know scopes kind of, I want to jump to the scope side of things because there's a scope buying articles and resources on snipers hide in the forum and on that. So there's some sort of, um, guide guidelines for when you're buying a scope but one of the things we notice a lot with guys with scopes is either really really complex reticles like with some of the um primary arms is one we see a lot of primaries i see primary arms everywhere Mm -hmm. and some of the reticle and choices made are more towards the ar world but they sort of put it in a bigger scope So it crosses over. So you have to kind of look at the scope and the reticle. Right. And and that's the first thing that we should be picking. Well, first thing are a couple other big choices. First or second focal plane, Miller, MOA. Yeah. But so scope choices. Let's let's just start from the top. So first or second focal plane, your your first or front focal plane is your dynamic scope. That's where you're adjusting your power. Everything's working. Your subtensions are correct. It's all good. Your second focal plane, this is going to be a little more durable scope, right? It's going to be a little stronger, take recoil better. So bigger calibers, magnums. For your ELR guys, it's going to double your reticle when you half the power. So you can shoot farther by using the reticle because it'll increase the distance you can shoot without having to put like a taco unit. For the guys like the LE people, the cops, I'm close now. And I don't want to power down, but I do, but I still want to see a full reticle. So with the reticle not moving, the police department guys can lower their magnification and get field of view, but then their reticle remains the same. Now there's caveats to the second focal planes. They have to be mapped. They have to be tested. You have to make sure the right reticle is in there. There's a lot of little things that you have to test with a second focal plane that don't really have to be tested with a front, but I'll say that about my first and second. What do you think? Um, yeah. The, and, and to get new shooters to understand the difference between first and second, what you really have to explain is 
if you're in a first focal plane, when you zoom in, zoom out, and I say hold a half mil right, your hold is always a half mil right, no matter what your zoom is set on magnification. Mm-hmm. But when you go to a first focal plane, if your magnification is not on what's predetermined to match your image size, then all of a sudden, when I say hold half mil right, you might actually be holding a whole mil right because the reticle and the image aren't correct. They're not on the same same image size. Right, right. You know, and once you explain it through that, then you kind of get guys to go, oh, that's why I spend a little more money and get a first focal plane. Yeah, so front or first focal plane, the reticle's in the front. So when you're moving the zoom, it's scaling with the zoom, your magnification. Second focal right. plane, the reticle's in the back. It's behind. So when you're moving the zoom, the reticle doesn't move, but the image is moving. So, Right. And, and so once you choose first or second, usually in long range shooting, we're going to try to get into that, that first focal plane scope. Yeah. Then after that, um, you're going to choose Miller MOA. And this has forever been the argument sent to the grave about which one's better, right? We don't really need to get into that a whole lot because both of them work. They you, both just work. Have, you just have to understand what you have, how it works, um, what the numbers on the dial are and what the numbers in your data is. That's it. That's, but that, that's all it takes. One works twice, two different ways. And one works like mills are mills are mills. MOA could either be shooter or true right. and shooter or true can matter. Okay, so we have shooter MOA, which is the rounded one, you know, one inch, or you have true, which is the 1.047. Now, all everybody out there is going to go, it doesn't matter because, you know, 0.47, I can't hold that at a thousand yards. So if I, if I have a one MOA, right, adjustment, so I'm one MOA at a hundred, I'm 10.47 at a thousand with a true. Problem is, is we don't use one, we use like 36. So now mm-hmm. that 0.47 gets multiplied like three and a half times. And so now you just changed everything. So that's why you have to look at it and, and figure out um, what's up and, and figure out what's going on. Right. And, 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 and so um, and the nice part is if you figure out how to dope your rifle correctly and do things differently. Hi. Um, so one of the good things is if you figure out how to dope your rifle correctly, you can actually work that error out of it. If it's one MOA or if it's shooter MOA, right. You know, but, but a lot of people don't know that you can dope it out of the rifle as long as you do it correctly. Um, one, one of the things also to know is, is mills. I prefer mills because it has an extra system and an extra base in it. You know, it has a wind calling system and it has a, it has a date, uh, a bullet drop system that you can run a lot of things through the mill system that you can't run through the MOA system. So um, both of them work, but one does have better parts than the other or additional parts that work for it. And that's where the mill system works out for the, for most shooters now. Yeah. The mills are simplistic. It's super easy. You don't have to get crazy with it. And, and so, um, and so that way there, it, it, it's, it's tens, man. We can work in tens. I, I can, I can count to 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. It's easy instead of fractions. Basically it's base 10 instead of fractions. That's what we're looking at. Right. So, so choose, choose which one works for you the best and you can, you can figure it out from there. I mean, right. if it, there's endless internet places to research yeah, that and the, figure the, it out. The arguments are silly, man. The arguments are ridiculous. Yeah. Um, 
don't get it. And it's a communication thing. If you go to a competition and you decide, hey, man, I'm going to buck the system. I'm going to be a MOA guy. You're not going to understand anything anybody's talking about, especially as a new shooter, because everybody's talking in mills. So you're going to have to translate and then figure out. And then honestly, the, 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 I, I want to fix this one argument because everybody will say, but MOA is finer, mainly because of eighth MOA, eighth adjustment. They'll say quarter is finer than tenths, right? So I can shoot something smaller. But let me explain something about old school mills versus old school MOA. A mill is 0.10, right? Tenths. So 10, there's 10 tens in a mill. So I got count to 10, that's one, then 10 more and so on. In between 100 yards, so between 400 and 500, I have 10, 10 yards. 410, 420, 430, 440, 450, 460, 470, 480, 490, 500. A tenth of a mil is supposed to match to that. And it kind of does in some places, in some people's setups. But a, the original mindset was every tenth of a mil was 10 more yards. Now, how MOA worked was MOA was quarters, right? Quarters, a quarter, half, three quarter, one, every 25 yards. So technically an MOA is not finer because it's meant to divide up 25 yards and a tenth of a mil is meant to divide up 10 yards. Now you can divide up one MOA into quarters again, but now we're talking more and more and more division and more numbers. So granular wise, we could do a little bit more with a smaller number than we can with MOA and we're not stacking fractions. Right. And, and if you want to take the linear numbers into it, at 1,000 yards, a, a quarter of an MOA is 2.6 inches at 1,000 yards. And, and a tenth of a mil at 1,000 yards is 3.6 inches. There's an inch difference in your aiming ability at 1,000 yards. Most people can't hold that on a target at 1,000 yards. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, an, an MOA being a finer adjustment, is it finer? Sure. Very small, very, not enough to worry about to, to make a difference. Nah. So don't get wrapped around that axle. Let that go out the window and realize you're actually using smaller, easier numbers and you can remember them easier because I'm not going to like, you know, 32, 34. It's, you know, I'm going to use 7.2. Yep. Yeah. Seven, you know, and that gets me to a thousand instead and, and of, you know, 32. <laughs> And, and most of the guys in the classes that I'm teaching and, and understand I'm teaching a two day seminar class in just a classroom. And the first morning, all we do for four hours is go through gear just to understand all of this gear stuff. And usually by the end of it, they're all, they're all asking, do you think the store will take the scope back that I just bought? Because they all bought MOA mm -hmm. and they start to figure out that they might want mill after two days of figuring out these systems. So yeah. very, very common. A lot of guys, regret buying an MOA once they figure out the other systems that are possible and how much one inch at a hundred yards does not matter. Right. And, and just, if you're going to shoot F class buy MOA, cause those targets are in MOA, you know? Well, so my question there, my question there is, do you even need MOA then? No, actually you don't because, because the target's already in MOA. The, right. the, the divisions are done for you. 
So you can use a bench rest style reticle that has no subtensions on it if you wanted to and just aim to center and then just have your coach tell you which how many more to adjust. You could get right. away with it because the target will tell you what you need and it's on paper. You can measure it. Right. Now, if you're holding enough to be off paper, okay, then you might need something else. But... Yeah, yeah. No, but I, I yeah. get it. We're just doing that's fringe. But all right. So we right. got scope. We got stock. We got rifles. Well, now, okay. So, so we got first focal plane, mm-hmm. Miller MOA. And then we were talking about reticles yes, and the reticle. reticle selection needs to come way up here at the beginning. A lot of people automatically want to start looking at um, magnification and tube size and, and all of these things. And they forget to look at the reticle to figure out what reticle works for their brain. Yeah. Which one do they look at? And their brain says, yep, that works for me. Some guys look at a tremor three and say, wow, that's cool. And my brain understands it. Or they think no they- brain understands it. <laughs> it's a complete lie. No two people can tell you what a tremor does the same way. Even right. the guy who invented it doesn't know how to explain it. Okay. Right. Now here's the thing. Less is better. Any way you look at it, less is always, always going to be better. Our brain wants a fine defined aiming point. If you throw a screen door or a grid up there, your brain is going to pick out the most prominent part of that grid. It's going to go right to what draws your eye. Now, if you have a easy defined aiming point, you're always going to go into that extra section. Why originally they did a cross here and not something else. They knew all about grids back then. They were shooting spider web reticles and anti-aircraft gun and aircraft artillery. They knew about complicated reticles. They, they can tell you how to do leads and holds. Our great, great, great grandfathers knew all that stuff. Simpler is better because it's a fine intersection that our eyes like. So. Right. And it's easier for a new shooter to understand what they're doing with it. Less is better. Worry about, be- yeah. You don't have to want, worry about all these other ticks and marks and widgets and digits and lines and, and all that stuff. You don't have to do that. Um, you, Your it, wind it, dots aren't going to work. They're not going to help you. I don't right. care what they told you about the wind dots. If you're not going to walk out to your range and you're not going to drop down and go, okay, I have an eight mile an hour wind and this wind dot is supposed to be what it is. And it's not going to hit the target. I guarantee it. Right. So we're looking for a reticle. That's very simple. Simple. simple if you're in mills, two tench hash marks. Yep. If you're an MOA, usually a one minute hash mark um, and, and a, a, a Christmas tree that's fairly minimal. Not a whole lot to it. Yeah. That's what we're looking for. For a new shooter to get started, that's what we're looking for. Something simple, easy to understand. And when you look at it and your brain says, that's easy. I know how to, I can figure out how to use that. That's the one we're after. So reticle selection is a big deal for every individual to be able to do that. That should almost be number one. That That should really be number one. Your reticle selection. What reticle speaks to me? I would, you know, most of us have an idea. I want a five to 25 scope. I want a night force, a collis, a zero compromise. What they usually know, I want something like this. Well, then start looking at the reticles and those scopes that compare. Right. And see which one speaks to you. Yep. Yep. That's what we're after. Um, and on the hide, we worked there a couple for last summer, I think a little bit about designing a reticle that we think, you know, new shooters should have. And you, you can go look that up on the hide. Very simple, very minimal, um, pretty easy to use. And some, some of the reticles that you find on the market, they, they, they want to be simple, but then they have weird tick marks like above the hash mark, you know, in the horizontal stadia, above the hash mark to through the center of the, ha- of the stadia and then one below the stadia. And if you repeat that several times, it looks like ocean waves and it can actually make your eye like some people think it's dizzying. 
to look at the way they have hash marks even laid out. Yeah, the way that so, they they they, right. they bound they 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 it's like a slinky almost. Like when you do that, it kind of looks like that wave of a slinky. I know what you mean. Right. So even more refined than all the hash marks, widgets, and digits, look about look at how the hash marks are, and does your eye really draw to it and know where it's going? Yeah, I, honestly, man, I've been doing this a long time. Rifles only was the original Horace people. I taught Horace. I don't use it. I don't need it. I don't like any of the heavy grids. I think it blocks my view. I know it does. It's not that I think I've used enough of them. I, I, I want to see. I want to see what's going on. I want to see through the grid. I want to see through the ridicule. I want to see past the Christmas tree. Because if you think about it, if if usually if you shoot a target and you miss it, above your horizontal crosshair you've gone over it or you've gone like alongside it on the shoulder odds are it's not going to hit anything unless there's a berm there right so it's going to go into the trees into the woods into the air and it's going to hit 100 yards back however if you go below that that's probably where you're going to hit the ground so if i'm aiming at something and in the, in the bullet drops below the horizontal I'm hoping I hit the ground or hit something I can see. Well, that's where they throw all the grid and it blocks that little bitty bullet. I mean, unless the dust is perfect and you get a big cloud, if it's something small and you don't know exactly where to look, it can, that grid will block it, you know? So I, I'm not a fan of the, of the grids. I mean, I, I can use them. I know how to use them. I'm happy to use them. And we're, and we're seeing the grids more and more go away. Yeah, but, go uh, back down to Christmas trees. They're reducing yeah, well, the Christmas trees down. Even, even totally going away, the new JTAC reticle or that's in uh, the 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 tangent. Yeah, tangent. They totally got rid of it. Yeah, they, not, not not even using any Christmas tree anymore. Yeah, you don't need it. No. Right. It, it was so, a good idea. I get where they were going, but it's been refined now. Right. So after after choosing a reticle, now is when you kind of start looking at you know you kind of had an idea what magnification, tube size, those kinds of things. That's where you start to pick that out. After you've got first or second Miller MOA, your reticle chosen, and you know now you're in what magnification can you get with that system? And sometimes it works both ways. You got to work the magnification with the reticle to make sure they work together. But um, after that, you're going to start looking at other features of the scope, uh, uh, magnification, tube size, and then other ancillary things like locking turrets and zero stops, illumination come way in at the end. So. Um, ma magnification one is always a fun one for me when you start to explain people what exit pupil is. Yeah. Um, exit pupil is the amount of light that's being let out the back of the scope. Most of the time to match our eye, like at night and low light, it's 8X. That matches us at night pretty much. So when right. our eye opens up all the way and we're looking through night vision and doing stuff and we want to match that to match our eye and our exit pupil, it's usually about eight power for most of the scopes we're using. So 8X is where that'll line up. Right, and 8X is, is a pu exit pupil size of about two point or 6.25. Mm -hmm. So the, the size of the pupil in your eye defines how much you can actually see come out of the end of the scope. And the scope exit pupil is a hard number. It's the, the diameter of the bell divided by the scope magnification. And if that number drops below two and a half or three, somewhere in that range, we automatically start to get to a fuzzy image in our eye. It's, it, there's not enough light coming into the human eye for the brain to be able to process it correctly. So I struggle with scopes that are like, um, 
you know, a 56 millimeter bell with 30 power magnification because of a 56 divided by 30, you know, you got an exit pupil of 1.8. So people always ask when I get up onto higher magnifications, why does the image in the scope always get dim and shitty? Well, it's because not because the scope is doing something wrong It's because your eye can't physically create that image. Right. 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 And, and younger, younger shooters, younger guys are going to have an exit pupil somewhere around two being the smallest that you can absolutely get to. And you have to have really good vision. Um, older shooters where vision starts to go away a little bit, you're going to have an exit pupil up there, maybe three or three and a half. Mm-hmm. So, so understand getting a scope that has this massive magnification and isn't always beneficial. Now, if you have a choice between getting, you know, like, like Vortex is two ob- options. Now they have a four to 27 or they have a seven to thir- or six to 36. If that's your two options, getting six to 36, great, because the chances of you using four or five on are the slim. four to 27 are slim. So I understand upgrading there, you know, mm-hmm. but getting, getting a higher magnification just so you can have higher magnification, you think you'll use it. It's likely you probably won't use it. I don't know many guys shooting matches on anything more than about 20, 22, maybe. The only thing I've ever noticed is like my 45s and my big scopes like that with the high, high magnification. Then your 25s look really comfortable. Like if I have a 5 to 25 scope, I'm shooting it between 12 and 18. If I have my 5 to 45 power scope, well, then I'm probably on 20 to 25. You know, I'll bump it up a little bit. Now, if I have to spot for Ted, you know, now uh, that was another thing we talked about spotting and everything. I spot on the lowest power of my spotting scope. My spotting scope does not come off the minimal power. So I don't care how far you're shooting or what you're doing. I'm on 20X or in a better times, if I bring my other hind salt, that's a 15, I'm on 15 to spot for people. Okay. So I might spot on 35 for somebody, but I'm shooting it. You know, on a 5 to 25, 12 to 18, on a 5 to 45, 20 to 30. You know. Right, right. So a lot, of, a lot of new shooters get wrapped into more magnifications, better magnification without the understanding of you probably won't use it or need it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that becomes an issue. I mean, scopes are the, probably one of those one areas where a lot of those things are like come, become truisms. You know, sure, get it. Even if you're not going to use it, everything lower will look better. So, yeah, get a get a 36 power scope because 26 is going to look beautiful. You know, 36, I ain't going to ever go up on there. It's going to look like shit. Six is going to look like shit. You know, it's going to be weird. Well, my eights to my um, 30 probably going to look pretty darn good, better than some of the other ones. And I think that's kind of what I like in that. So, yep. Yep. I stay away from the fringes on scopes. I'm in the, I'm in the center quarter. I, I try not to get out of that middle third in the middle. I don't go to the edges if I can help it. And um, I like to keep my mag down in the middle somewhere. Right. So. And that, that's what new shooters don't always understand. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, all right. So sack scopes, rifles, actions. What are we talking about? Calibers, man. Let's, let's talk guns, man. Okay. Um, calibers, the, the, the thing you always have to bring up is what caliber do you want to learn with? You know, like we were talking about 300 wind mag stuff before the magnums. 
when you're when you're new into long range shooting, what's the caliber you want to learn with? Um, so something that that's easy to shoot and easy to reload or find ac- uh, factory ammunition for is kind of where you want to be at to get started. Um, here, here's here's where I go. Here's me right now. I'm a six Creed more if I want to do six millimeter. I'm a six five Creed more if I want to do a six five, and then your three oh eight. So I do six millimeter Creed more. I will tell you guys right now, it's been on the shelf everywhere I've gone, including Alaska. I can always, always, even in this drought, get six Creed more. Six five Creed more, harder to get, but that's going to be pretty standard out here. I like the six five Creed more. I'm a fan. And then you're going to go your 308s. Now, for me to throw one wrench in the works, I'm still a huge Valkyrie fan. So if I want to go lower, I'm not going to go 556. I'm going to go right to Valkyrie. So for me, those small calibers, and, and honestly, I know there was a misfire with the Valkyrie. It's working now. We're loving it. A lot of us are shooting it, and we're enjoying it. And guys are even doing the Mexican match with the 75 grain stuff because the 75 grain stuff is so good. And it's um, really cheap. It's $8 a box. And what they're doing is pulling the 75 grain out, putting a 77 grain in it, and it's working perfect for people. So I'm a Valkyrie fan. I, I still like it. So I'm doing that. Six Creed, six five Creed, 308. Yeah, I'm right, right on the same page with you. And if you get down to that 223 or 224 caliber, just making sure you have a really good, efficient bullet. Yeah, yeah. The better bullets and stuff. Um, what are you what six millimeter? Are you doing Creed too? Um, actually, I think we're going to see something pick up more and more is going to be that six arc. Are, uh, I really think as long as you can get the bullet face for six arc. Yeah, six the arc, GT. I think the GT is the better way to go, to be honest with you. If I'm going to do one of those, because the GT's off of George's lockup now and Hornaday's yep. releasing it. So if yep. I was, I the arc is interesting. I just don't see the merit in a 2,600 feet per second, six millimeter. Now I've seen arc shooting and they're doing okay, but it's, there's nothing to them. And, and you got to be on top of your game with the arc. Right. And I, I find the arc no different than the six BR or real close to the same. Cause that 2,600 feet per second is actually probably a bolt gun or a, a semi-auto speed, right? Yeah, it is. And, and in the bolt guns, and, I haven't seen and, anybody really bolt gunning them as much right. lately. Hornaday now has out the, the reloading information for bolt guns for six arc and they're pushing them 2750, 2800, just like you do a six BR. Yeah. So, so they're, it's kind of me like, why i get it if you want to run one cal and you got a semi and then your bolt and it's kind of the valkyrie mindset the arc was meant to try to fix the valkyrie misfire you know and it's it's like uh, okay i get it it was meant to solve this problem but it doesn't solve frank's problem because i want speed and i'm even going to look with the valkyrie i think we can blend powders and do things i'm being told the valkyrie was throttled and you can actually get the Valkyrie to go faster. So I might look at some blended powders. And there's been discussions about a 3,000 feet per second Valkyrie offering. Wow. So, okay. But the other six meter is you brought up the GT. If, if the GT gets the factory ammunition going and they find is, that on out. the shelf, then, then I think that would be a, a very good caliber. Yeah, choice as well. the G, to me, the GT is going to be where you replace your BR and your Dasher. 
So if you've been reading everything on the internet about a BR and a Dasher, you just want GT. Just don't go down that BR Dasher road. Just go GT and be done. So yep. uh, basically you all heard a 6.5 by 47. A GT is just a six millimeter by 46. You know, so that's all. Yep. Cool. So you got most of your rifle put together. Mm-hmm. And then the only other things to talk about now is like bipod and rear bag, your front and back support. I, I'm an advocate. Spend the 300 bucks for a bipod. Right. And, and the exercise you have to go through is, you know, you're talking like an Atlas Cal, right? Yeah. Is where you want to be. Go through the exercise of adding up a Harris bipod, add the swivel, add the Hawk Hill talon feet, whatever, add the pod lock, add all this stuff together, and it costs you about $5 more than if you just went and bought the Atlas Cal. You know, if you get all the widgets and doodads to go with it, you should have just bought the Atlas Cal to start with. Right. Atlas Cal is your bipod. The Harris is 1968 technology. It's stamped metal. It's not square. It hasn't been changed since it was made. And while there are many aftermarket parts and knockoffs with it, it's not going to help you. Right. So, and, and to, to go one step further, you got to remember, these are brand new shooters, guys yeah. that aren't super budget. How many times do you have a call? You know, I don't want to call names out, but like a call. Well, it's a $35 bipod or the really, the really, really uh, cheap ones that you find on Amazon that are for sure knockoffs. Yeah. Uh, the bipods that, that hook into each side of the Picatinny rail on the side of the forearm that are separate legs. And there's no can't, no change, no anything like that. You know, if it, the Harris is the minimum at $100. Yeah. I, I will but, tell you this. We, I, I, on routine, we travel with our classes with a minimum, minimum of three extra real bipods. Whether it's a Thunder Beast or an Atlas, we're carrying a minimum of three because a bipod's that important, and it'll be life-changing when we swap it. it it'll, it's immediate effects that are noticeable. Yes. When you get, the, when you get into fundamentals mm-hmm. and understand what the bipod does to change your fundamentals, yes. And, and especially getting off something that's like the six to nine-inch bipod, something that's taller, it's a little bit higher. That makes it work for you. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Atlas Cal PSR legs, taller legs, Atlas Cal PSR. That's my go-to recommendation. Yeah, um, and, and even guys getting the sky pod, I even recommend not to get the shorter PRS legs. Yeah. Get the doubles. Yeah. Get the, well, they have a short and a long, which oh. long is the standard. Yeah. And then they made a short for the PRS and, and getting the long ones can, can really help as well just to get you high enough yeah you want to be high everything in the world we're going to get hired man there's nothing out there we're going to want to slam ourselves down unless you're going to crawl in a spider hole you know if you're going to crawl in a hide and get in a hole and shoot through a loophole yeah then you can get away with little bitty shit but everything else we do in the real world a little bigger a little taller a little higher is going to help us right so uh what uh trigger weight trigger weight um Okay, so most guys are buying a factory rifle, right? Coming yep. out with this somewhere mm-hmm. between three and a half and four and a half pound Harley Davidson. Yep, yep. Yep. And, and trying to, if you can find a trigger that's tunable, you know, even in a factory, like the Bagaras, the Tikas, all those have an adjustable trigger now. Trying to get that trigger weight down to somewhere that's a pound and a half. One, one and a half usually, is good. I think yeah. like the good, you know, pound and a half, 16 ounces is a sweet spot for me right now. So if you can do 16 ounces, I think you're in a good spot to learn and to be safe and to everything work and the way it should be is, is not a bad area. 
Right. Pound to pound and a half is where I like to see new shooters start. Yep. Yep. You know, new shooters shouldn't be having a, a three, four, five nah, ounce trigger. Nah. We don't need a lawyer figured out trigger. how to drive that yet. Right. right. We don't need a lawyer trigger. Just going to pull you off target. Right. And and MDT now is working on a zero pull trigger. I saw that. Yeah. That it's creepy, but we'll see what happens, man. Cause you know, if you touch it and it goes, you have to, ha- is there positive control to the electronics? If something's barely moving. So that's my question is where does it go? I mean, I guess you can make the shoe have like almost no resistance to it or an an adjustable resistance to it. And then when it touches the contact, it fires. But to me, it's got to be safe. I can't just put my finger on the trigger and have it go off. So with the zero weight trigger, I have to see it before I can hear it. Right. hundred percent agree. And understand most guys that are buying, I mean, most guys that are buying a long range rifle, wanting to do the long range shooting, aren't in it for the competition. Okay. We're all kind of in the competition world. Yeah, and the part yeah. that we all like to forget is that we might buy in the competition world, we might buy one or 2% of the rifles in the country. Yeah. And the other 99% of rifles are being used for hunting um, or just for fun, for sport, Abs- right? Absolutely. I, there, there's, there's, um, the competition world is big. It's growing. It's getting, it's got some, you know, ups and downs to it. It's a lot of smoke and mirrors with their numbers, a lot of repetitive, a lot of people doing the same thing over and over again, which adds the pure I, organic numbers are actually very small. So when you hear PRS, 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 right, all that crap, that number is actually very, very small in, in the big picture. And, and a lot of guys that are in my classes, you know, are coming there for the very basic, the very basic fundamentals, the idea, the gear. And when I say the PRS, they look at you cross-eyed like, what's that? Right, right. You know, they don't even know. But what they're trying to do is shoot a white tail at two or 300 yards. And, 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 you know? and competitions are great training. Just go with, like I tell everybody, go to three events before you invest, borrow, learn, investigate, do three one-day events, and then decide what you want to do. Don't jump in before you've ever done it. Do it first to make sure it fits your mentality. Because I see guys, we've had them even in your area, they in the parking lot, right? We did a class. Hey, what's everybody here for? And the least physical guy in the class was the only one that said PRS. You know what I mean? Why are you here to shoot a whitetail? Why are you here to learn my fundamentals? Why are you here for this? Why are you here for the PRS? You're here for the PRS? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yep. So, so so it's important to, to remember when you're talking about this stuff, especially online in a, in a blind conversation that not everybody's trying to shoot PRS. Yeah. Put it this way. The, the, the winners are, you know, 28-year-old guys. 18 year old girls, you know, that kind of stuff. People who are in shape, who have eyesight, who do this. Now there's old classes and yeah, you know, old age and treachery sometimes works, but it's, it's, it's a bit of a young person's game, but it's fun to be out there with them. So, right. um, what is it? Temper your expectations. Is that the word? Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You have to manage your expectations when you go. Yep. Yeah, go there, go have fun, hang out with everybody, do your thing. But if you're a 55-year-old guy, man, dude, you're just going there to have fun. So just go there to have fun. 
Don't go there thinking about your score other than how to improve. Don't go there thinking about, you know, where you're going to be near the finale. Go there to network, have fun, meet people. Usually those are the matches that you'll do better at. Yes. Get, get rid of the pressure of trying to win, right? Just have fun with it and you'll, you'll find yourself doing better anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Once you take that out of your head, man, life becomes so much easier. The pressure that these guys will put on themselves is staggering. You know, I mean, even Phil, Phil's a great one. I was at, we were down at the guardian and stuff, Vallejo and stuff. He's off on his own, man. I'm over there watching him before he shoots a stage. That dude is getting in a bubble. That dude does not want you near him. You know what I mean? And, and that's what he has to do to maintain his, his place in that system. So you have to look at it. There's a lot of pressure where somebody who's that good has to go and envelop themselves in a bubble. Now, once he's done shooting that stage, he'll come over and talk to you until he goes to his next one. Then he doesn't want you near, you know, and I get that. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's a, that's a, that's a thought process. That's a pitfall. Yep. Part of the game. Yeah. Part of the game. Yeah. So, so once we get done with gear, like, you know, you got your rifle, you got your scope, you got your, your, your bipod and your rear bag and you're ready to go shoot. The next thing you have to talk about is software. Yeah. Weaponized math, man. That's and, all you and, need. And I would break software into two different parts. Like there's, there's a hard gear that software, which mm-hmm. is what program you're running, applied ballistics, that I would still kind of call that hardware. Um, and then software is, is the shooter themselves. Yeah. You know, so if we talk um, about the hardware first, which is the, the program, what are you using? I've gone back to AB. I'm you using know, AB it... a, a lot. Um, what, I, what I'm using is the Kestrel and the Garmin when I'm managing it. But what I did first is the first thing I did. I'm losing a signal here, I think. We're getting. Um, what I did first was um, I doped my stuff with weaponized mass. Yeah, this looks good. So I doped everything with weaponized math. Then yeah. I input that into my software at home leisurely, set my software up. Then when I go out and travel with it, I know everything's good. And I'll either do the Garmin on my wrist or I'll do the Kestrel in my pocket and usually bring both. Right. And the, and the, the real dream, the best part about weaponized math is, is, is you got to put yourself in the position of a brand new shooter. I've got a new rifle. I've got ammunition, I've got it zeroed, and now I'm going to try to dope it. And when you say try to dope it is when guys get out the chronograph, put the chronograph in, put the numbers in the, in the ballistic calculator. They don't really understand what they're doing with ballistic calculator yet. And they try to shoot 600 yards and are nowhere close to a target. Right. And what it leads to is frustration where shooters don't understand why that didn't work. I mean, it's one input versus 12. At right. a minimum, you need 12 inputs. For a software, some right. software wants more. Now, now guys that are experienced and that know how to run software and done it before, sure, knowing how to set your software up, being able to put in a velocity and then go shoot 600 yards, experienced guys have better success at it. But being a brand new shooter, weaponized math is by far the way to go um, for a couple of reasons. It puts you on target quickly. There isn't a lot of missing. Right. Um, number two, you save ammunition, right? There isn't a lot of missing. Number three, at the end of it, you have true ballistic data for every yardage. And when you go to play with your ballistic program, you know if you have your ballistic program right or wrong. So that you don't have just two pieces of data 
600 and a thousand. Now you have data at every yardage to make sure it's right. So having that backed up and what it does is builds confidence, builds confidence in the new shooter that they know, Hey, I've shot this. I know what the dope is. And now my ballistic calculator is showing me what that is. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll say this with, with software, software is good, man. I mean, but the, 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 it's not the engine that drives the data. It's the UI that we're looking at. Okay. Cause the thing is, is we, I mean, I've, I've been on the ground floor with a lot of software. I've been and met with people, been to places and you name it. Um, you know, I've been to the locations. It's where do you find that piece of info to put into the software? So it's the menus. Where are the menus? Where is that? Pe- where does that go? So yeah, you could do the general 12 inputs and get you started. But then there's these menus that fine tune and you have to you have to kind of scroll into them. So it's not so much, you know, that one's better than this one. It's the user interface. We have um, really we have three choices out here. We have three DOF, three degrees of freedom. We have four DOF, four degrees of freedom. And we have six DOF, six degrees of freedom. Now, the six DOF would be the best. And Lapu is the only one that has it I know of right now. That's civilian. Doesn't work very good. Um, it's not great. It, it's their weather and their atmosphere that was the problem, but it's out there. And it's not a great piece of software. Very few people use it. Now, Fordoff is the super popular stuff, really, because that's your Hornaday's, that's um, your Traceals. There's a lot of Fordoffs out there that are powerful and they're good. Those are the ones I tend to use if I can, is the Fordoff stuff, because that has pitch and yaw. So it knows there's a bullet and there's pitch and yaw. Three doff is everything on your phone. All that stuff running your phone just about, but like Genesis and Traceall in Hornaday are three doff. So they're missing certain elements. And what happens is, is the author puts those elements back in as a flat rate value. So they'll do like time plus this. So if you do one second of time, it's going to equal one inch at a thousand yards and whatever percentage of one second or a plus or minus, we're going to move that needle in scale. And so that's what they're doing. Uh, for what we do, they all work the same, like to hit a target. Once you true it and you put into work, I'm not hitting better with my four doff than I am my three doff. I hit better last year at gun sight with my applied ballistic three doff than my Hornaday four doff was giving me. So I ran them both together to match them. They're both trued equally and the three doff beat the four doff. If you want to call it beat. Right. And, and the, the thing to understand with programs is like you said, they're all doing the same thing now. Almost every program, we're truing it the same way now. There isn't one program that really trues much different than another program. So the information you can get out of the end of the program, if you true it correctly, is about the same. Yeah. Um, I, what I do want new shooters to look at is what's that user interface look like? And this is one of the reasons I really like Hornaday Fordoff. I started there, so I'm a little bit biased because I started there and it worked well. But the Hornaday Fordoff, the input system there is there's something intuitive about it like how you put your wind in it's like a chinese menu is what i tell people because you're looking at the picture and you're picking what works for you like so it's like you know like to me i hate going to a chinese restaurant that doesn't have pictures 
Because even the description of the restaurants me... I try to stay away from. Yeah, see, I want the picture. <laughs> so, you know, um, yep. so I like four off. It's the Chinese menu. I can visualize it and see. Yes, I know that's bigger. I know that's smaller. I pick on that one where the other ones are a little bit more manual and you have to know this will make it go up and that'll make it go down. Right. And, and like the Hornet Ford off program, the, the wind wheel for me is a big deal because you can actually see numbers change as you move the wind direction. For a lot of programs, you have to put in a different wind direction. I'm at, right. I'm at 90 degrees. I'm at 98 degrees. I'm at 104 degrees and then try to map what's happening. With Hornet Ford off, you can use the, the wheel, wind wheel, and you can actually see things like aerodynamic jump happen you know, as you adjust the wind from right to left. Yeah. So understanding the interface and what's happening on the interface, it's kind of like the reticle. You have to open the interface, understand, and, and what works for you. What do you understand the best? Because we know all the math and the ballistics in the background is going to be about the same as most other programs, um, and you're going to get the same result out of it or close to but knowing how to run the front interface becomes a really big deal. And choosing a simple one that works for a new shooter is important. Yeah, my, my uh, ballistics for dummies bomb warning. If you're doing software, like don't do this. If you're a new shooter, you're new and you haven't put in the effort, even if you're experienced, but you haven't done it, don't touch powder temp. Stay away from powder temperature at all costs. I know people like to throw a little powder temp number in there every now and then. That breaks the software quicker than anything. If you want to know the one input that will destroy your software in a minute, it's powder temp. I was at a match in Oklahoma last fall. A fella came short the day before the match. They shot his gun out, trued it out. Um, one of the really good shooters in the league really helped him true his program, got it running for him, you know, kind of a new shooter guy. He shot 600 yards. They had their number. The next morning, they come to shoot the first stage, I'm in his squad with him and it's 600 yards again. And he says, why is my, why is my number one and a half mils different from yesterday? And it's because they had put the, the powder temperature thing in there. And then the temperature went from being 103 degrees yesterday to being about 75 that morning. And it threw everything off in his program so bad. And it took us like 20 minutes to figure out because it's in a sub menu program. Yes. yes. Cause it's in yep. a sub menu that's yep. down and you don't, it's like the last thing yep. you look for and it's in there. And, and he'd gone through two or three guys. This guy couldn't figure it out. That guy couldn't figure it out. Third guy's on it. And finally I yelled at him, check your powder temp table. And, and, and they said, yep, there it is. Took that out, put it back to zero number came right back to what it was in the program worked for him really well all day. So there yeah, I go. agree. Messes it up in a hurry. It's now, big, if you, too. It's a yeah, big mess. It's a big mess. Mm -hmm. If you do the work and actually figure out what those numbers are, it's a good tool. But you have to do all the work first to figure out Ain't what those are. Ain't none of us are. worrying about that shit no more. Don't even sweat <laughs> it. Just turn it off and don't look at it. Right. Yeah. So I don't one of those, touch it. One of those ideas for a new shooter of keep it simple, right? Yes. Let's try to keep it simple. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, we're in the ballistic programs, and you can kind of go that direction, too. What do, you, what do you do for a brand new shooter to help them understand long range shooting better you got your gear you got your program you got everything put together and somehow you have to break it down and make it more simple otherwise the new guy is standing off in the corner talk about talking about coriolis effect when he's shooting 600 yards yeah and doesn't understand it really didn't make a difference anybody out there talks coriolis or spin drip or even aerodynamic jump to you as a new shooter make them buy the drinks because that guy's not too smart and you want him to buy all the drinks um so that that's kind of, I turn all that stuff off. I even turn it off in ELR. I still don't turn it on. 
now they just everybody everybody in the industry who like knows how I am like Corey Trapp's a great example. Corey Corey Trapp knows like when I do the XLR course at Gunsight and I'm shooting you know 2400 meters, I'm not using spin drift. I'm not using Coriolis. I'm probably gonna hit the target in the first or second shot, and he knows that. Frank just has that in his brain and it swayed that way for him. Don't listen to him. And then he just, and he knows, and, and, and I don't cause a problem in the class. I don't tell anybody not to do it. I keep my mouth shut and I just snicker. And then, you know, as long as I'm quiet, I'll get the high five for thank you for being quiet. <laughs> and, and let's, let's go back to one of the first things we were doing was design, defining the parameters that we're talking about, right? right. We're talking about inside a thousand yards, half of the voodoo can go away. And, and I'm going to say even three quarters of the voodoo can go away. It's in the noise of the wind, man. All of it can go away. Because the, wind, be- the wind would be the only voodoo out there. Right. And if you do that, you got everything. Right. And, and one of the, you know, keep it simple, right? So we're getting rid of spin drift. We're getting rid of Coriolis. And depending on your yardage that you're shooting, you might even get rid of more than that. Yeah. Temperature, pressure, humidity can go away. Well, humidity for sure inside of a thousand yards. Is it even worth messing with? No, nope, it's four tenths of an inch, not four ten times ten. Four tenths of an inch with a three oh eight at a thousand yards. Right. So you ain't doing so, anything with that. So why do we complicate it with that? You know, well, and the new shooters like it because it's interesting. It's a new number. They think they got to play with it. But uh, really, you don't. Today, the only reason we talk humidity because it's a factor of density altitude. Right. Outside of density altitude, we do not discuss humidity anymore because you don't need to. Just throw it out your head. Your barometric pressure for us is really a factor of elevation. So you, you're in Florida. You're going to go shoot an elk. Your barometric pressure is 2992 down there, right? Now you're going to come to Denver 5280. You're at 5280. So you just came up and doubled your pressure. So technically, we're not at 2992 anymore. We're at 2489. That's your barometric pressure change. That's elevation. So if you subtract 5280 from 2992, that's where you get the um, 2489, right? Which is station pressure. Station pressure. Now I'm going to go from Denver to Pagosa Springs to go shoot an elk. Now I'm at 10,000 feet. I'm still using my barometric pressure there, except now it's like 22 and not 29. So I'm putting in my station pressure and I'm doing it that way. So barometric pressure for me is a function of altitude. And then my biggest variable for when I'm shooting normally is temperature. Just like you said, it's right. 55 in the morning and it's going to be 95 in the afternoon. What's going to happen in between that? Something will. And so, uh, and like Ted was saying, with our modern guns, modern bullets, modern powders, we usually don't see that jump until 400 yards. So inside yep. 400 yards, the temp can change all day and nobody cares. After 400 yards, every time the temp changes, I better chase it or start right. paying attention to it. And that's where I'm taking even more voodoo out of the system. Yes. Someone, someone shooting inside 400, maybe depending on your pallet caliber, 500 yards, you know, six, five Creedmoor going from, negative 2000 density altitude to 10,000 density altitude is about a minute of angle change at 500 yards. Right. Does a new shooter really need to worry about that? If they're, if they're, what they're after is shooting an elk. 
No, but I'd want to tune him up a little bit because he's probably going to be a little excited, a little off if I can get him a little better. But if he fucked it all up and got excited and said, hey, there's my elk, I got to shoot him. He's probably going to hit it and kill it. Right. Yeah. So from 500 to 1,000 hard yards, you have to start paying attention to your environmentals. Right. You know, temperature, pressure, humidity. Well, humidity we got rid of. And if we take pressure and elevation and put it into one, we have station pressure. So yeah. station pressure and temperature from zero to a thousand yards is the only two numbers we have to pay attention to. That's it. That's all I'm using. That's it. So yeah, so, that's, that's great stuff right there. Keep keeping it simple. Getting rid of the voodoo is, is a, is a big part of getting a new shooter into long range shooting. They're excited about it. They have success and, and they keep getting better at it. Now, if you're shooting like a PRS match and you got to hit a diamond at 500 yards, you might take some of that into account, but yeah, but, yeah. but a new shooter, probably doesn't need to you know mm-hmm. that's that's what i'm trying to get to is a new shooter not if, the right place if for you're him. a brand new shooter at a prs event and maybe it's your first or second and they got like a one moa diamond out there i'd almost be dropping one in the berm or the dirt for you and, and dump your first round and see it learn what it's doing at that range and get a call on it and then use your remaining rounds depending on the layout of the range now and then use your remaining rounds to go after the diamond. But I would take the first round and put it into something I can see. And then the second and third would be on my diamond. Right. Um, and, Just and as even, a learning, as a learning experience. And getting guys into PRS, one of the biggest things I tell them is write your data out. Yeah. Stop being at a PRS match and running a Kestrel or your phone or something else. Because the more time you spend staring at a piece of electronic is the less amount of time you're staring, you're trying to figure out wind. Right. Right. So, so 90% of the matches I shoot anything inside 600 yards, I pull it off my written data card and, and use the talk to people in the wind in miles per hour, not in their holds. Don't right. go out there and start asking people what they held. Ask them how much wind they held for. Did you held for six or did you held for eight? I mean, we're all having that out there. It's like, well, this was, I was doing four. He was doing five. Well, I was only doing three. And we were, look, we had these really switchy winds that like a front came through. So every single time somebody went up, there was a two mile difference between what we were all holding because the wind was so variable. So by guys coming out to go, I was doing four and this dude going, well, I did six. And it's like, well, I only did three, you know? So now we are getting a better idea of what everybody's wind calls were doing. And then we can look at that, but talk in miles per hour, not in, I held 0.6. We all should hold 0.6. You know, you're just holding a different caliber than me. Well, 6, 0.6 is your normal width of a target, so that's just right edge, right. left edge, whatever right. it is. <laughs> right, totally. Yeah, but in, in the in the data, you know, um, new shooters, I, I try to get them out of a program, out of out of running a ballistic program on the shooting line. Let's mm-hmm. get you to something printed on paper that you can look at a number and know what your, well, know what your dope is. And here's my trick. You talk about, like, writing stuff down, coming off the of- – So you got your first stage or whatever stage and the winds are tricky and you're not sure. I don't really know where I'm going with the wind. What am I going to do? Well, I just shot a stage. I know I hit the plate. The wind's blowing. There's a direction. So if I walk off that stage and I line everything up azimuth to the target, wind direction to that, and then measure in speed, and then I know what I held because I just did it, I will then true my Kestrel on the wind side to that mile per hour in hold, to that distance I shot, and then I'll take that to the next stage to use as my starting point. 
right? So you're back calculating. Yeah, Here's what I, happened. Now back calculate to figure out what was that wind speed at that direction. Right. And then once I back calculate it with the, with the program, well, then I'll go there, I'll double check it, I'll run it. And then I'll just let the program do it for me because now I've back calculated and I've kind of spun the dials to match. And so I know I can go in and I can keep that method going. And it's just like, hey, this is telling me to hold 1.2. Yeah, okay, that looks about right. I'll hold one too. You know, and that gives me a number without overthinking it. And it puts a number in my head. I'm going to hold one, two. And then if I miss or something's up, well, then I'll see where my hits are, my miss, and I can adjust from there. And now if it's one, five, well, I'm going to go back and figure the winds change, the aspects change, and I should look at these changes and where I am in the field now. And then can I get it? Because it's like Guardian was linear. So you could do the entire stages and the wind's going to give you the same look, just a different value. And then the only thing you have to worry about is any obstacles or berms that might be in between you and the direction at that point. But like eight of 10 stages, the wind is, a, is it got an equal effect, you know? So, so your, your cute, your key words there are what you teach everyone is your first three shots on a, on a range are where you learn the wind. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm learning it before I try to take it too, but. Because after that, you can back calculate. You know what it is. Yes. So it's important for new shooters to understand the first three shots when you're trying to learn wind are the are the most important. You have to have a plan, a process, make a wind call, mm -hmm. and then find out was it right or wrong. And then I'll go into the software and let the software help me. You know, I'm not yep. trying to run the numbers in my head. I let the software do it. Right. But so. you still had to gauge wind speed and direction. Yes. And I had to know what I was holding and hit and did all that. Correct. Right. Right. Awesome. Where else are we at? Um, that's probably most of the gear stuff that we went through, you know, getting into the ballistics and the environmentals and all of those things. Um, just trying to take the voodoo out of it, make it simple. You know, yeah, I, this, this is detailed, man. We went, we got into a lot of, a lot of in, in the woods here. I see. I see so many shooters show up to these two day seminars just to get information. We're not even shooting. Mm -hmm. And when we leave, be able to understand the concept of long range shooting better. They come in with, all of this information, all of these parts are trying to balance, all of this stuff they're trying to put together. And if you can sit down and explain it to them over a course of an afternoon about ballistics and say, look, pay attention to these during this time and these not during this time. Right. You know, and get rid of these factors. And, and you kind of see light bulbs go on and people understand the process a little more. And if you don't know, bring your tools and bring your manuals. You know what I mean? If it, Show up with your tools and your manuals if you don't know. A lot of times scopes are the tricky part. So just bring the tools and the manuals if you don't know with you and somebody will answer you. Right. So, yep. Yep. Cool. I think we covered pretty much everything for a new guy to kind of get the gun running. Uh, clean it when you first get it. Cause guys do find metal chips and stuff in the barrel. Um, so definitely brush your bore. Even if it's just a punch, you don't have to clean it, but brush your bore out with a patch. Uh, two patches and stuff to make sure nothing was in there when you first get it. And then afterwards, I clean it. I want to shoot 200 rounds right away. Then I'm going to clean it like normal, but I'll do a good cleaning. Then after that, I'm barely touching it, except if it's getting put up. But what you want to do is with most of our rifles today, most of the stuff, you want to knock out 200 solid rounds 
Then you want to get your chronograph numbers if you're going to get that, because that's going to be your metric of how well your barrel's going and stuff like that. And then um, from there, I know my barrel's ready to go. I, it's not going to change speeds if it's a six mil or something weird. It's not going to do anything crazy on me. And I know after that first 200 rounds, I have a consistent gun and it's ready to move forward. Cleaned, ready to roll. And then I'm going to get it dirty as shit and probably never clean it again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I guess I guess one thing, big thing we probably skipped was rifle setup. How you set it up? Well, yeah, um, that's other podcasts. That's a, a lot of that. That's a that's yeah. a that's a Finnegan thing. You want to set, yeah. dude? Think of your cars. Rifle setup is your car. Your scope is your mirror is your mirrors. Your bolt is your steering wheel, and the stock is your seats. So you want seats <laughs> at your car. You want to set your mirrors, and then you want to make sure you can still run the steering wheel the way you need to, and without having to compromise your arms. You know, so. Yeah. Seats, mirrors, steering wheel. And understanding going to modern long range shooting in the prone position where we're straight blind behind the bore. If you go from shooting like a little green army man, kind of angled off the side and you go to shooting straight behind your rifle and fundamentals, understand that completely changes all the setup for your rifle. Yes, absolutely. Changes, changes length of pull, changes where your scope is at. Um, eye relief, it changes your, your cheek height. It changes all of these things. Changes your bipod height. It really changes your your gun setup, depending on how you shoot that rifle. And that's, that takes a little bit more for someone to kind of explain all that yeah. to you and then show it to you, work you through the process of what's that fundamental look like. So absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. And we set everybody up in the class and I know you do. So that's kind of why we'll do that in the class, but um, no, I think we nailed everything, man. We got pretty detailed with that. So yeah, I'm yeah. good. I'm good. What are you thinking? Okay. Um, I, I, I want to say thanks, Frank. Mm-hmm. Because you you're, make, plug? you're making me do a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> um, For free. Kind of, kind of, kind of got into this. Um, you know, you know, taking classes from you and stuff, and decided to share it with everyone. And it was about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, you came out on a podcast and said, "What are you doing to help grow, grow the sport? Mm-hmm. What do, what are you doing? What are you doing to help grow the sport?" And I kind of took that to heart and decided to kind of start something new. And um, what I'm trying to do is day zero. And you and Mark are day one. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to put on classes that are day zero so you can come get real information, understand where you're going, gear you up, bring your right gear or spin you up, bring the right gear to like a Frank and Mark class. There you go. Ted's that's, a great instructor, man. He the shoots good. I would definitely recommend it. That's that's where I'm trying to be. Um, other things that I've started doing recently is I, um, I took over running the Iowa Precision Rifle Matches. So we've got six or uh, yeah, six matches every summer here in Iowa. We're doing PRS style matches. Which range is uh, that? At at Sure Shot. Sure Shot. Okay, Waterloo yeah, we'll be there. Auburn. Them. Yep, yep. All right. So you're going to be at um, what's the name's place? Gotcha. John. Yep. yep. John's. John's. We go so, to Sure Shot. Um, we do classes at Sure Shot, so it's it definitely this year's going to be soybeans, so you can see everything. Yeah, yeah. It's easier to make matches that way too yes, when you don't have yes. to shoot through tassels. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Oh, tassels. Good stories about tassels. That's another day. But yeah, so um, to give back to the shooters, what I've tried to start doing is, is running those matches. They are new shooter driven. Um, we actually do two courses of fire, one for a beginner and one for an advanced. Nice. So usually it's the same target package, um, but we do like more movement for the advanced guys. The advanced guys are going to be like a normal PRS regional or border wars style match. And the beginner course of fire is going to be maybe you only have to move twice instead of four times in position. Yep, yep. I was um, um, I was watching the, the Rolex race and I'm watching the endurance racing lately. So like Le Mans, Daytona, mm-hmm. endurance mm-hmm. stuff. And they run everybody together. 
And I do it in my match, my Colville match. If you're an individual, you shoot as an individual. If you're a team, you shoot the same course of fire. But as a team, we just do the time. I think there's a way to have the same course of fire and maybe a one plate that's different for a better shooter, smaller plate. And then like what you're doing is maybe you have pins. So a new shooter shoots from the forward pins, the other shooter, and that's the movement is yep. your pins, you know? So I do yep. think there's ways of having one match and still being able to manage a variety of shooter experience without having to do extra work other than dividing the score up to say, you're this category, you're that category. And, and we don't even divide the score up. We right. leave everyone scored together. And it's really interesting to watch how it, it works itself out. Yes. And I you think know. that's a good way of doing things. And then I really agree with like the, like talking with the Western precision guys, the classifications, the ABC when it's over and right. putting you into it. Cause then it gives you that ability to move up. Hey, I've been a C guy. Now I'm a B guy. I want to get to a, you know, so right. maybe giving people that information and in, in setting that up is not a bad thing. And I, I want to try to get there, but we need, we need guys to show up first, you know, match yes. most of our matches right now are 10, 12, 15 kind of guys. So if you're in the Iowa area, um, you Come know, and you want to, and you want to do a match and if you want it to be your first match, I'm more than happy to squad with you. I'll help you. I'll do anything I can to make sure you enjoy that day and you come back and shoot more matches. So perfect. starting to run those matches and, and, uh, and, uh, Frank, you know, making sure I'm trying to give back Frank. So I'm with you, man. You're, you're, I, you're uh, not the people I'm worried about. <laughs> if you're, if you're looking for any of my classes, you can look me up online at accuracydynamics.us. That's perfect. the company name there that I'm running. So. Got one coming up in um, Appleton, Wisconsin at the end of March. Otherwise, if somebody wants a seminar class, you have to let me know where you want it. You know, I'm open to travel and open to go, and I just need to know where you want it. So sounds good, man. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. This is great, man. I appreciate it. This was awesome coming in for the last minute. We were kind of goofing around, and then it's like, why are you here? Why are you here? What are we here? <laughs> It'll work. Yep. Yep. All right, Ted. Thanks for being on the Everyday Sniper Podcast. Guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for commenting. We will be talking to you soon and we are out of here.